Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello, Tom here, just with one more brief disclaimer to add. In this episode, we talk about some of the books that John Cork worked on, but I think we failed to give his co-authors the uh, credit they deserve. So when we talk about the book James Bond The Legacy, it's worth noting that this book was co-authored by Bruce Sivilly. Bruce also worked with John on the DVD extras um, that we talk about. And John told us that no one works harder or digs deeper than Bruce, saying he's one of my best friends and the best professional association I've ever had. We also talk about the James Bond Encyclopedia. We should note that John actually only co-authored the first edition of that book, with Colin Stutz and it's Colin that actually has done all the subsequent updates for later editions of that excellent Bond Bible. Finally we mentioned the documentary and book Bond Girls Are Forever and it's worth noting that these were co-authored by Mariam Diabo of the Living Daylights fame. Hello, you are listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Um, As always, my name is Tom Butler and I'm joined by Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And Mr. Tom Wheatley. Hello. We are continuing our odyssey through the world of the James Bond films from A to Z. We are currently on the letter C and we will be joined uh, in this episode by uh, Mr. John Cork. This is the first time that someone we have covered in the podcast is appearing in the podcast. So very thrilled to be joining for him to be joining us for this. He, uh, if anyone has watched any of the DVD extras on the James Bond films, you'll recognise John. He appears in many of them. He's also written, produced and directed more than 30 documentaries for the DVD and Blu-ray releases. He's also the author of a number of books that we refer to um, a fair bit, uh, including The James Bond, The Legacy, James Bond Encyclopedia, Bond Girls Are Forever. He's written countless books about Bond. So we will talk to him about all of that. Um, 
before that, though, we've got a couple of corrections. Brendan, do you want to start with something that? Uh, yeah, retract uh, a statement. <laughs> I'd like to retract the first uh, incident of rain being Casino Royale in 2006. That was incorrect, um, as pointed out by uh, who was it who pointed out on Twitter? Uh, MI6 Confidential, the the, the website slash magazine. M- yeah. So thank you for correcting me. It was actually on a Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, it was you, the first. You've certainly been a bit sheepish for the past few weeks. I've had to lie low about this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also, uh, I, I can't remember why we were talking about Canada. Oh, we had a, write, a, a listener from Canada and um, said that, that Bond had never shot in Canada. Um, we were swiftly corrected by Brian Valco on our Facebook page who said that the spy who loved me did shoot in Canada. Um, and we talked about this when we were doing, oh, I don't know now, possibly Willie Bogner. Um mm. They basically part of the shoot, um, part of the um, the jump off the mountain was filmed on Mount Asgard, which is in Canada. So I think we're still fair to say that it's never been set in Canada. So um, unless somebody else corrects us, yeah, unless someone else corrects us. But that's the beauty of the podcast, right? Yeah, we're always are... happy to be corrected. Yeah, yeah. and they're, like... and they're just the ones that people have uh, messaged us about. There's probably a lot more. Yeah, they probably just deleted the the feed from their um, from their phones and said never listen to these idiots again. <laughs> but I mean, I guess as we explain on the intro, we are on a learning journey. The three of us, we, we we're lifelong fans, but we are learning new stuff every episode. We set our our homework for each other at the end of the episode, and we we have about a week to to read all the books and learn everything we can. So yeah, sometimes we do get it wrong, and we love to hear from people who. Uh, yeah, can correct us. So uh, yeah, please do that. Um, let's um, get on with speaking to John Cork. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Mr. John Cork. Thank you so much for joining us. It's nice to be here. It's amazing, John, because you're the first person that we've spoken about on the podcast that we are getting to speak to. So it's a real honour for, 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 to be joined by yourself today. You've, been, you've come up twice, once when we were talking about the Pierce Brosnan uh, era of films, and then we talked about yourself specifically, um, because you've got quite an interesting connection to the, the, the Bond films, um, which is why we why we asked you one. But, but we just just to start off, where did your love of James Bond come from? Where does that originate from? You know, the first film I ever remember seeing in a movie theater is from Rush with Love. I was three years old. It was on a double bill with Doctor No, according to my mother. I have no memory of Doctor No, but the only memory I have of from Rush with Love is I'm watching the film, and James Bond fires the very pistol. It ignites the fuel and the water on fire, and I knew at that age water couldn't burn and i turned to my mother and asked her i'm sure at a volume that the entire theater the capri movie theater in montgomery alabama could hear uh and asked how james bond was making water burn and my mother proceeded to explain to me that oh he poured gasoline on it and it's the gasoline that's burning so not that anybody needed that scene explained to them but it uh that's my memory friends had james bond cars i remember seeing some trailers for films i saw majesties in the theater i saw diamonds in the theater but i really became a james bond fan when i was 11 years old and a friend of mine and i rode on a friday afternoon in the summer 
up to that same Capri movie theater in Montgomery, Alabama. It's the first movie I ever rode my bicycle to go see. And we saw Live and Let Die. And the title song still gets me goose flesh every yeah. time I hear it. The action with the speedboats was beyond magnificent. I, the, the, I grew up around speedboats. My grandparents had a lake cabin, and so they had ski boats, you know, just... Um, and actually, a year or two before, my grandfather had gotten a Sidewinder, which was a very fast um, inboard-outboard uh, speedboat. And I'm not sure what deal he had done somewhere to afford this this monstrosity, but it had the, the sparkly fiberglass stuff. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And so when the speedboat chase started, I thought, oh, yeah, I know this world. And I didn't know this world. I had never seen speedboats <laughs> jumping over roads, jumping over land, flying over cars, you know, crashing into things like this. And, and I remember thinking consciously in the theater after that chase had ended, I'd just seen the greatest 10 minutes of motion picture film that my 11-year-old mind had ever seen. And I was also on that cusp of puberty, so I had no idea how to talk to girls. I had no idea how anything possibly worked. And here was this, this guy who had this incredible confidence about him. He could be witty. He could be sophisticated. He certainly was not a country music listening um, tobacco chewing redneck, which is kind of what I didn't want to be at that point. So, you know, there was a lot going on there that, uh, that really appealed to me. And about a year later, I finally, I couldn't, I bought the, the soundtrack album. I'd listened to the song over and over. I had seen what little bit I could see. I kept asking people about James Bond movies and stuff. Uh, I, I think I may have gotten John Brosnan's James Bond in the cinema and read all the summaries of all the films, but I uh, finally got around to starting to read the novels. My mother checked two of the novels out from the library for me, and by the time, and that was in early summer, and by the time I hit Christmas, I'd read all the novels twice. That's fantastic. I think a lot of people yeah. get hooked in at that age, right? Yes, I mean, James Bond certainly... Uh, um, appeals to the adolescent boys in in all of us and uh that that was you know uh, noted in the the literary review for dr no that paul johnson wrote <laughs> so in a very demeaning sort of way so how did that then lead up to your invol actual involvement uh like with the bond films so on that trajectory well, it's a weird and complicated story, and I don't know how much you guys are going to be interested in it, but I'm going to prattle on for a little bit. <laughs> you can edit out what you don't want. Uh, so in 1978, um, I'd gone over to the, to the UK, to Europe, in fact, on one of these, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium type of trips that uh, my grandfather had, had given me. Um, and I, I loved it. I mean, I just, it was this incredible world of just, you know, history and architecture. And it just felt so much cooler and more sophisticated than Montgomery, Alabama did. I'm not sure why, but it did. And while, I, when we got to London, which was in later July, the, the premiere of Spy Who Loved Me had been July the 7th, 1977. And I had actually gotten 
called internationally at great expense. My allowance was not happy when I had to pay that bill. But uh, over to the Eon offices. I'm not sure how I found the number, but International Directory Assistance, something like that. And I had gotten a flyer to buy Premier tickets, which I still have in a file folder somewhere around here. Uh, but I couldn't be there for the premiere, of course, because we weren't going to be there in London at that time. And I, um, but I, I went to see it. And that week that I went to see The Spy Who Loved Me, which I stayed for two screenings, that weekend they opened up Pinewood Studios, supposedly for the first time in history, for tours. And so I got to go out there. I got to walk across the 007 stage, which was actually being built out for ice uh, with, with ice blocks for um, something that I think is like two or three shots in Superman the movie. Uh, they had one of the Lotuses out there. They had uh, uh, Kurt Jurgens' uh, um, chair back that, that went on his, the back of his, his sort of director's chair thing that he would sit on on set. I bought that. I you know, there was just, I, I, it was it was amazing to me, somebody who was already very interested in film. So I, I came back from that and I thought, how do I get back over to this, this incredible world over here? So I found a program that was a semester program, uh, got my school to agree to let me go, got my grandparents to agree to let me go, got my mother to agree to let me go. And while I was there, you had to do a special research project, which I did on the British film industry. And thus it gave me an excuse to just look at the production of Moonraker, which was the only thing I was actually really interested in. So, which was of course, only the special effects were being shot in the UK. So everything else was in Paris. Nobody seemed to care, it did not knock my grade any. Uh, I met some people involved with the films at that point, And I asked one of the guys, this was uh, um, a guy named Morris Thrift and Derek Coit. And I asked them, uh, if they said, you know, you, you've been a great kid, we, you're smart, you're energetic, we like you. Uh, is there anything we can do for you? And I said, yeah, I'd love to go to the premiere of Moonraker in the U.S. And they said, well, we could get you in the premiere in the U.K. But I didn't, I didn't think I could get back. Um, and then he suggested I write a certain letter to U.A. in the States. I did. And I got invited to the U.S. premiere of Moonraker. And U.A. Publicity took my picture with Roger Moore, which I have sitting around here on the wall somewhere. So <clears throat> they truly made a lifelong fan out of me at that point. I went to film school at the University of Southern California. Um, I uh, remained a Bond fan, went to some of the early screenings, went to some other premieres. But in 1989, I wrote a script that was made into a film which opened in 1991 called The Long Walk Home with Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg as far away from a Bond film as you could get. It's a civil rights drama about two women um, during the Montgomery bus boycott. But that got me kind of my foot in the door of the industry. And at a certain point, um, I was contacted by a guy I'd bought some books from named Mike Van Blericum. When you get to the V's, Mike is a great guy to talk to. Uh, and Mike had um, gotten a call from somebody at Eon who said, hey, there's this submarine from Fear Eyes Only that is in the, the bowels of the intrepid aircraft carrier, which is now a tourist attraction in New York, and they want to get rid of it. But they called and asked us if we wanted it back first, but a dive club wants it. They want to sink it into the bottom of a rock quarry in New York State, and then they'll go and do dives down to the, to the thing, you know, just as something to see at the bottom of the rock quarry. And 
uh, Doug Redenius, Mike Van Blericum, and myself decided, no, no, we have a much better idea for that submarine. We will buy it and restore it, and we will create this thing called the Ian Fleming Foundation, which uh, is still existing. I'm not on the board anymore, um, but I still talk to all the guys who are involved. They do a lot of work, and, and less so with Ian Fleming than the James Bond vehicles more than anything else. They preserved a lot of the Bond vehicles. And they started asking me a lot of questions in the early 90s, of like, what the hell's going on with Bond? How come there's not another Bond film? What's going on with the legal wrangling with uh, Giancarlo Peretti and Credit Lyonnais uh, and MGM and, and, you know, is Bond dead? And so I called up my agent, incredible, wonderful woman at, the United, at United Talent Agency. And I said, what's going on with the Bond films? Uh, and she knew I was a huge Bond fan. And she called me back. She said, you know, they're just beginning to interview uh, writers and you have an appointment <laughs> to go in and pitch. Wow. Don't blow it. So, and the, you know, I got this chance to go in to pitch. I, Barbara Broccoli, I think was uh, impressed with what I, had to say about the character and the sophistication, the sexuality, and, and you know how important that sex appeal was was going to be to Bond. And uh, so they brought me back in for a second meeting. Cubby Broccoli was there for that one, and I went off to the UK where we were trying to start a archival project with Glidrose in the UK. And while I was there in that office. My agent called the Glidrose offices because I, and Glidrose holds the literary rights to the James Bond series. It's now Ian Fleming Publications, but at the time it was called Glidrose. Um, anyway, so she, uh, she called the offices, she knew where I was and said, you got the gig. So I was literally standing in a room filled with boxes with all of Ian Fleming's professional papers surrounding <laughs> me. Wow. When I got the call saying, you get to go in and try to write a treatment for a, a future Bond film. Now, she knew and I knew at that time that they had hired Michael France to write what would become GoldenEye. And then I was hired on my checks. It said Bond 18. Now, here's the thing. Writing a James Bond script is an incredibly tough job, particularly, you know, Michael Wilson is a... a somebody who has a very, very high standard. I'm not great at writing treatments. It's not my thing. I like writing the dialogue and the specifics of the action and you know, getting into the nitty gritty, but treatments are, are, are not a lot of fun for me. So we went around, I must have gone through 30 stories because my story involved a satellite. And Michael said very rightfully, you know, the last thing we're gonna do is make a, a first film about a satellite and then make Bond 18 also have something to do with satellites which of course is, ends up what happening with Tomorrow Never Dies anyway. But so we kept trying to, you know, come up with different ideas and stuff like that. There were a lot of things I pitched um, over and over again, uh, tried to work a bunch of stuff out, but I got very frustrated early on. And when I say early on, it was at my second meeting after I was hired where I said to them, okay, which iteration of James Bond is going to be the James Bond in, in you know, that you want, because the James Bond in Dr. No is actually even different than the James Bond in, in Goldfinger, much less the James Bond in The Spy Who Loved Me or the James Bond in A View to a Kill, you know, and 
from there to License to Kill. They're, they're, the characters are very different. And this sort of went around in a little discussion. And, and at a certain point, uh, I said, have you ever read the Bond novels in the order in which they were published? And looked at the way Fleming develops the character and the, what Bond's journey is through the series, which is kind of an interesting journey for me. And Michael Wilson said, I, I've read the book so many times. And Barbara said, you know, I've never read them in order. And uh, there was a development guy who has done a lot of screenwriting, great guy, who, who turned to me at that point and he said, can you get me a list of the Bond novels in order? And I said, yes. And I looked up at the ceiling, went Casino Royale, Live and Let Die, Moonraker, Diamonds Forever. And I, I just listed them out in order. And then I looked back down and Barbara, Michael, and John Claflin were all looking at me like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, this guy, he, he's, he, he may know a little bit about James Bond. Well, this ended up leading to me, uh, um, another writer, uh, Richard Smith, had tried to write some stuff up about who the character was. And John Claflin urged me to um, do my own version of that. And that ended up being something like a 90-page document that was called like, James Bond in the 90s, which looked at Bond, looked at the role of women in the Bond films, looked at what makes a great villain, looked at what makes a great henchman, who Q should be, who Moneypenny should be. And that document actually became the thing I contributed at that point. That document was given around to future writers. It was given around to department heads, uh, certain department heads or whatever so that people had kind of a template to look at and say, oh wow, here's all these things that Fleming wrote about who James Bond was. Here's all these things from the films that sort of reinforce or echo those things in different ways. Here's a list of things from the films in these different categories that may not work as well. Example, counterexamples of where things may have fallen a little bit flat. And that was a lot of different meetings. Uh, Cubby Broccoli got involved, Dana Broccoli got involved, and uh, you know a lot of back and forth on, on what should be in that document and what shouldn't be in that document. And that was really my contribution. I never wrote a treatment for them. I mean, we just, we, we went round and round and we could never kind of come up with a story that excited uh, Michael and Barbara in the way that, you know, I kind of hoped it would. Um, but the character Bible became a weirdly involved in the Sony lawsuit that came up uh, just before um, Tomorrow Never Dies opened. And then weirdly, at the same time, I'm editing this fan publication called GoldenEye Magazine for the Ian Fleming Foundation uh, and trying to get people to rope them into doing newsletters so that people wouldn't riot over the fact that I couldn't get you know, a magazine done once every couple of months. So it's like my hobby was James Bond, my work was James Bond. Um, so it was a lot on that. Um, <laughs> you, it's a lot of questions off the back of everything you've just told us, but I think one of the main ones for me is, you wrote this character Bible. Uh, when you watch the films now, do you ever see anything in them and think, oh, that's something I wrote back then. They're, they're using that information I gave them. Character Bibles don't quite work that way. Uh, you know, there's there's the broad generalization of who is this person, and then there's the very, very specific application that writers, directors, and actors go through and, and you know, interpret that. 
And so, you know, in the character Bible, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was in the initial draft because, you know, it was like, okay, what kind of shoes would James Bond wear? What kind of, you know, do we want to put him back in a Rolex? Do we want to do this? And I, I would list out kind of pros and cons arguments uh, on these things. What kind of car is he going to drive these days? And of course, then you get, you know, BMW comes up and says, ho, ho, ho have we got a deal for you? We've got this hot little roadster that we're gonna be putting out. And, and all the arguments about whether it should be an Aston Martin or a Lotus or whatever, they just go completely out the window because yeah. somebody's come up with a car and you actually want that sort of newness, that sort of like the new hot thing that people can grab hold of. So I think it comes through in some of the attitude you see, uh, particularly in, um, GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, I think after that, the usefulness of that initial document went away. Uh, they had me redraft it in 1999. I redrafted it, I believe. Uh, but they were already had shot um, The World Is Not Enough by that point. They were, you know, when Michael asked me to redo the, the document, I think, uh, I think they were already past that. And I didn't, you know, uh, Again, it just really comes down to like, you know, just sort of an attitude more than anything else. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, working with Cubby and, and, and Barbara and Donna and, and Michael? Like, what are those people, what are they all like? Because we've talked about them a lot on, on the podcast, but um, we get a sense that, you know, they're very family orientated people and they hold James Bond very dearly to their chest. But like, how would you characterize them? Well, you know, Michael Wilson, I, you know, he... He summarizes himself, I think, in sort of a great way, is uh, he's somebody who carries around a little card in his wallet that has the periodic table of elements on it. He is an incredibly practical person. He loves James Bond, but he's nothing like James Bond. You know, he wears tweed, not some, you know, exotic suit and everything like that and he doesn't try to model his behavior on James Bond and I think that's really wonderful because he comes at it with this engineer's point of view and that's how you get the opening sequence in The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker he's the one who says wait a second hold on let's look at this incredible stunt thing that incredible stunt thing how you know can we can we work this into a story uh on that end. Um, he's somebody who very much is interested in, in sort of engineering how you make a movie the most efficient way possible. And it's hard to think of the Bond films as being efficient, but you know they are an incredibly efficient machine on how they put those films together. Uh, because the more efficient you are, the more money you get to keep in your pocket. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. So, you know, he loves the technicians. He uh, shooting an interview with him once and, and he was fascinated by the light kit we were using to light the interview and was like, wow, so you, you, you know, tell me about these lights and stuff like that. So he's very, very practically minded. Barbara is just warm and generous in so many ways. Uh, she is the kind of person who you know, if she knew the chips were down and she gave a flip about you, um, she goes to people's rescue. She cares around about people a lot. And so you, you can see this in the script development when you get Barbara really involved when you get to GoldenEye. Uh, 
that the characters become a little more complicated, a little more interesting, a little bit, uh, a little less um, of kind of the, the, you know, there's a tendency in films to sort of go for the tropes, to go for characters that are a little bit more cliched. So that when they were making Dr. No, for example, you know, uh, one of the things that, that Terrence Young and Los Maxwell agreed was that Miss Moneypenny was not going to be wearing glasses with a pencil behind her ear and sort of the lovelorn secretary or whatever, that she had to be more interesting than that. And then by the time you get to The Living Daylights and they recast her, you know, Miss Moneypenny becomes the glasses, the hair in the bun, the pencil behind the ear, the lovelorn secretary character. And these sorts of things you know, creep in over time when you get familiarity and you're not pushing the characters as hard. Barbara pushes those characters. And she's been very involved with story creation as well. I mean, it was her idea to, to say, hey, these oil fields uh, um, in Azerbaijan, they're fascinating. And, and, you know, what if we were to make a story that, that surrounded how oil moves around in Europe and the world and to, to, to try to use that as a core thing. And so she can get involved in the physics of the story as well. And if Michael's into it, boom, there you go. You're off to the races. But, you know, you see with Barbara, she is pushing the writers to push those characters further. And what was Cubby like to work with? When I met Cubby, he was certainly older. He was, uh, um, so he was not you know, as engaged on that. And he was not at all the meetings, um, but he was someone, it's really hard to, to express when you're somebody like me and you walk into the room and there's Cubby there and you're sitting down with him. And, you know, Cubby is also not like James Bond and he doesn't try to be like James Bond. Cubby liked to wear blue jeans. Cubby wore belts that were, big, thick leather belts with large Texas uh, Western belt buckles on them. Um, and, you know, he talked with this, this uh, you know, New York Italian accent that, that uh, it, it, it sounded like Marlon Brando modeled the Godfather performance off of that accent. <laughs> um, you know, he lived in this, this incredible... Uh, Beverly Hills Mansion, which the whole time I was there, there was an American TV show called The Beverly Hillbillies. And the whole time I was there, I could only hear like the musical sting from The Beverly Hillbillies going through my head. And I was like, you know, we're sitting out on this little balcony and, and there's a, a, a Filipino manservant who's, who's serving us like brunch stuff while we're trying to talk about the character Bible. And there's the, the pool out there. And I kept wanting to say, you know, when was the last time somebody swam in the cement pond, which is what they called it during the Beverly Hillbilly show. So, uh, but he was, um, you know, he was incredibly warm. He was deeply in love with his wife, Dana. He uh, got a lot of joy out of filmmaking and a lot of joy out of creating something that could make an audience get involved. And he also had a, you know, for somebody who was, you know, I think battled his weight his entire life and, and never looked like he was the fittest guy in the room, um, he loved adventure. I mean, this is a guy who had gone on a sailboat to Hawaii. They, he liked going on locations to places. He'd gone to the South Pole to, to shoot Hell Below Zero. He'd gone to Africa to shoot you know, Spain, 
the Bahamas, Jamaica. He loved, you know, going places and doing things and making the story feel real. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of, uh, uh, you know, the the big thing I remember uh, about him is that you know when that would shine through. Um, I came into the office one time. I was just dropping something off, and Cubby was there. And you know, the first time I met him, he said, "Call me Cubby." You know, uh, everybody calls me Cubby. You know, you know. So if you call me Mr. Broccoli. You know, it means you don't like me. You know, so sort of thing. But <laughs> I came into the office, and and he was just in fine form. Most of the time, I'd come in, and we might be eating lunch at the restaurant, or we'd be sitting in in Michael office you know which was also cubby's office but it was really michael's office and you know cubby would be very quiet for like 90 percent of the meeting you know i'd be talking about like we could do this auction scenes you know we did an auction scene in octopus scene it's like yeah and the reason that i felt like that scene didn't have like anything that got bigger and bigger that's why i kind of wanted to propose this like other kind of auction scene but you know it'd be something like that i wouldn't say it that way to him of course but you know he would just come in with these little brief things to say but cubby um was out in the lobby and everything like that. And, and uh, Barbara's standing there with him. And somehow the story, something about a premiere comes up. And I'm not even sure which premiere it was. It may have been A View to a Kill, but I, I'm not really sure. And he said that he was at the premiere, and he's, of course, job is, as the producer, to go through and introduce Diana and Charles to everybody who's in the line. And he gets to uh, uh, somebody's wife, uh, the director's wife, I think John Glenn's wife, I could be wrong on that. And he can't remember her name right then. And he's like so embarrassed and everything. And he said, you know, I was just so flustered. And, you know, she, of course, said her name and he apologized. And then he turns and Barbara's standing next to him, next to them. He says, and this is somebody's name. Of course, I can't forget. It's my daughter. And he said, the mind dropped out. The, the bottom dropped out. <laughs> he's looking at his daughter and he's like, oh my God, I can't remember her name. <laughs> Barbara's standing next to him and she's laughing and rolling her eyes and everything. But, you know, he had no ego about telling somebody like me that story. That's funny. Yeah. You know, and that's 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 like a real human. That's somebody yeah. who is, you know, not one of these cocky assholes who thinks they rule the world or anything like that that you hear about in the film industry or anything. And, you know, this is somebody who just loves people. Um, you've talked a lot about um, the Bond series, but obviously you've got a lot of work that you've done on DVD, on DVD extras and, and short documentaries. How did that come about? And I, I, I'm sure the other guys are as interested to me. And what is the process for that? Because we watch these these um, extras on the DVDs and Blu-rays all the time. What is the process for pulling those together? So the way that came about is, you know, I had been doing this work with Barbara and Michael and a guy named Lee Pfeiffer, who uh, um, at the time really kind of dealt Bond memorabilia and had written a book with Phil Lisa that was... Uh, uh, you know, sort of like a mana from heaven for Bond fans. And he had gotten very interested in 
the idea of of doing something for Laserdisc, and he had some contact at MGM or whatever and stuff. And he, you know, when he met me, he was like, "Oh, this guy's got contacts with Eon and stuff, and you know, maybe he can make the help make this happen." He got another guy involved named Mark Cerulli, and so we went off to London uh, with a, a Bond fan named Paul Scrabo and his his wife George Ann, and we uh, did special features for Goldfinger and Thunderball for these big, elaborate, multi-disc, laser-disc uh, uh, versions of the film. And that was a lot of fun. Um, I was the guy in the Los Angeles area. I was living in Burbank at the time. And so I, I kind of, you know, the, the, the closure work kind of fell to me on completing a lot of that stuff. Uh, there were some mechanical problems with working with MGM on getting the editing done they were trying to do a, a type of editing that was going to be very complicated made changes very difficult so we ended up going to new york to finish those off um uh, lee and mark during that time had had some family obligations so i kind of went and slept on a guy's floor in new york that i could i could do because we didn't have any money i mean we just you know there were three of us the pie is only so thick and everything like that lee had a full-time job mark had a full-time job mark's done some wonderful work over at hbo and he's done some special features i think on halloween and some other films that are that are really good and we we wrapped all of that stuff up. We got our editing done. MGM really liked the material, and then I moved on. Yeah, you know, I was back in screenwriting. I was taking screenwriting assignments. I was not getting a lot made, but I I, I was uh, it pays nice. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'd kind of moved on. Occasionally, some little Bond stuff would pop up. Um, Lee and Mark and I, I tried to launch a couple of other projects. But Lee had his own sort of thing going on. I had my thing with the Ian Fleming Foundation going on. And, and we kind of moved off in, in different directions. Um, during that time, actually right after we did Goldfinger and Thunderball, the laser disc for Goldeneye needed to be done. And the guy at MGM that I kept going in to see said, you know, uh, do you want to produce this for us? And, you know, here's what it'll pay. And I was like, well, you know, let me contact. He said, no, no, the other guys... I don't ever see them. I don't know who they are. They're 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 out there. I know how hard you've worked on these these laser discs, so you come in and, and run the online sessions for us. So I did that and pulled together material for them and got some stuff cleared, coordinated the Michael Wilson, Martin Campbell audio commentary, got that recorded. And so some years passed, and it's 1999. I had written a spec script, which I was very, very excited about, and my agent... Uh, um, was not excited about it. She didn't feel it had had potential, and uh, but during the time that I was finishing up that spec script, I, I got some phone calls from two different individuals, and they were like, "Hey, I th I think they're going to do some special features for the DVDs of the Bond films. Can I use you as a reference?" And on both of them, I was like, "Yes, I'm happy to say that you're a good person and stuff like that." And then I get a phone call from a guy at MGM, and he says hi and you know home entertainment mgm home entertainment and he says hello and and uh i said so which of the people that i said i could use use me as a reference are you calling about he said i'm not calling about either one of them he said everybody uses you as a reference so we figure if everybody's using you as a reference you're the guy we should call and having just poured you know my blood sweat and tears into the spec script that that 
my agent wasn't going to send out was like this could be interesting and then um my my uh then wife was pregnant with my son and it was like you know guaranteed work for a little bit over a year i get to interview some of the people that i've whose work i've admired since i was a kid and uh that's how it came about amazing and, and did you work quite closely with um did did Barbara and, and Michael see the documentaries? Were they involved in any way in, in them before they went onto the DVDs? I called them up when the gig came up. And we had um, a phone call, you know, early on about stuff. And then when I came over to the UK, I sat down with Barbara um, and I, I interviewed both of them. I mean, a lot of the interviews for those DVDs were shot in Michael Wilson's office. So, you know, he'd be like, I can stay home. I can work from another place today. You guys shoot in the office. It's not enough room to light and everything. And, you know, he had that, that big partner's desk that uh, Cubby and Harry had in there um, on that. So, you know, it was it was enough room for us to bring people in and do stuff. Some days we shot down in the the screening room they had uh they have at, at the Eon offices. Some days we shot in the archival room, which tended to be the noisiest place. And then we shot at a, you know, a lot of other locations. But yeah, I mean, they basically said, "Oh yeah, we're out to sell DVDs." That's great because they get a cut of every one of those sales. So, they they love that. Um have you worked with all six of the Bond actors? That's that's a, a, a not really. Uh, I I met and had dinner with Sean Connery uh, one time, but he never gave us an interview for anything, and we never had to like go to him for clearance for anything for that matter. When we were doing Goldfinger and Thunderball, when uh, uh, Mark Cerulli and Lee Pfeiffer and I were, Mark Cerulli is the one who had the contact. At, at Connery's agency and supposedly got it pitched to him in a in a meeting in a sit-down meeting at the agency but we never were able to get anywhere we had a great opportunity a fantastic opportunity he was going to do the voice for the the uh, from Russia with Love game the last mm-hmm. Sean Connery James Bond performance so I knew this and I go into the home entertainment offices because we're redoing the DVDs and we had already, I believe, done the Roger Moore audio commentaries uh, in Monaco, um, which had been a little bit of an operation and, and was wonderful to spend that, that time with him. And I, I went to a, a person there and I said, hey, uh, you guys are about to pay, you're still in negotiations, but you guys are, are negotiating a $10 million contract with Sean Connery for this. You just need to call up the guys at, at MGM Interactive and you need to, to say, we want audio commentaries to be part of that deal. And I'll go to the Bahamas. I know all the behind the scenes stories. If they say Connery doesn't know, you've got a guy who can prompt him on everything. I have, at the time I had all the call sheets. I, I had all the scripts, I, you know, I, I mean, you know, and that's how you really try to get a good audio commentary is you, you have to be there on the guy's headsets and you, you need to be prompting them uh, to tell the story so they don't just start narrating the film. So, well, in this scene, I walk in and, and you know, <laughs> I, I, I think I heard those ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, filmmaking for the blind. So it, it's, um, it was a really, uh, it was a missed opportunity 
because I think they could have gotten Connery at that point. $10 million is enough to say, you're going to sit down and you're going to watch these films again. Mm. And uh, there's going to be a microphone in front of you. And so the way I worked it with Roger Moore, for example, is I, I would interview, I would talk to Roger a little before the, the, the film started. Then we would start the film. I would prompt him throughout. Uh, if he said something illegal gets in there and, and other people look at it and they're like, uh, I don't like him saying this or whatever. So you get, you get little blips take cut out all over the place or he's, he's just, he's factually wrong on this and we might take it out because he'd said something wrong. But then at the end, I would ask him all these other things throughout. So if there's a long scene that he wasn't in, I might ask him something about his background or something. But then afterwards, I would I would ask him things. If there were things that weren't clear in what he said, which Roger Moore is incredibly, was incredibly articulate. But if there were things that I thought he kind of bumbled over or didn't say very clearly or I thought might be confusing, I would ask him to tell that story again. And then we take all that audio and then we try to block it out to, to do the film. But yeah, I mean, I worked with Roger. I certainly uh, interviewed um, uh, George Lazenby. Uh, I never interviewed Timothy Dalton. I met him a few times socially at, 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 at occasions, but I never interviewed him. Um, interviewed Pierce Brosnan and met him on a couple of occasions. And then when we were doing the Casino Royale uh, collector's edition, uh, I was on the set of Casino Royale in Prague. They were shooting the casino scene. So Daniel's in the tux. He's, he's looking like a million dollars. He, he is Bond there. And uh, so I got to, to meet with him and you know, chat very briefly with him. But we never interviewed him for that. We tried to set it up. But frankly, we didn't really need a new interview with him for the material that we were doing. We were, we, there was so much stuff that was done by this company called Special Treats, which does amazing and excellent work. I mean, I kept wondering, why the hell are they hiring us? They've got special treats already there, you know, to do all this stuff. But they did, and we were very grateful for that. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to concentrate on stuff that, that there's no way a company like Special Treats that was on the set was going to be able to focus on for that edition. So we did a lot of stuff about the original novel, Ian Fleming, the character of James Bond, Bond's history with the Bahamas, you know, that That's kind a, of stuff. That is a great one, the Bond's history in Bahamas, because it's so detailed and... When you watch that, and it, it shows you where they shot that thing in Casino Royale and how close it was to where they were filming, you know, The Spy Who Loved Me. I thought that was a fascinating, uh, yeah. uh, just a, such a great and, treat on that desk. And Thunderball. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you the know, hotel. You know, it's, yeah. Like, it's like that half-finished building was built after Thunderball. They shoot from the roof for The Spy Who Loved Me from that, that unfinished structure. Huh. They shoot the free-running sequence for Casino Royale in there. But the Coral Harbor Hotel right behind it there which is it's all part of a military base now military installation i don't know how much of a base it is or whatever but there's the hotel lobby you go through it and then out there is a drained swimming pool i don't know what it is now but it was like holy crap you know when you're looking at it because i'd always wondered because you know they come up they walk up the sea on paradise beach in the bahamas and they walk up there and then they do this cut. It looks like there isn't a cut at all, hardly. It's, it's one of these sort of Peter Hunt specials that, that just sort of like flashes past you. And they're walking up by the pool, but there's a channel behind it where boats are coming out. And you're like, where the hell was that channel? Because it certainly doesn't cut through that long stretch of beach that was in the background of the previous shot. And it's like, oh, they're, they're in completely different islands. And total you know however many miles apart they are but they just match that just brilliantly 
Amazing. Mm. Uh, John, it's been 30 years since uh, you did the um, the character Bible in the 90s. Now it's yes. the 2020s. Is it time to update it? And, and and what do you think would be in that character Bible? Well, the character Bible gets updated every time they make a film. Right. Not physically updated. I'm not sure anybody's sitting around doing that. I have actually communicated to Barbara and Michael in the past that you should get somebody to do it who, who maybe is involved with the films now um, on that. I, I feel like, you know, the Daniel Craig films have gone off kind of in their own direction uh, with the character in a really fascinating way. Um, aside from Casino Royale, I haven't been involved with any of the special features on any of the films. I, I, it, it was it was time to pass the torch, particularly since the entire home entertainment market was dying in that sense anyway. And, and what you really get now is you know, these very limited edition releases and then you just get streaming service releases. Um, so, uh, you know, but I, you know, I feel like they have, um, you know, they're, they're about to come up with a, a brand new opportunity. I mean, hopefully there's already work going on whatever the next script is going to be and what direction they're going to take the character when they recast after Daniel Craig is going to be fascinating. So, uh, but with Daniel Craig, I think they, they, uh, they walked into a particular place where they decided after the success of Casino Royale to really hang on to this thing, which I had talked about in the character Bible, was, was you know, what is James Bond's burden? What is, what is the thing that he carries with him? And I'd say, well, it's Vesper's death. And, you know, that this is, you know, there's the death of his parents, but there's Vesper's death. And, you know, Vesper's death is mentioned a couple of times more in the novels, but only very briefly, only in passing. And what they've done with the films is, is they've, they've let that sort of sink its teeth in just a little bit more firmly so that Quantum of Solace seems fixated on Vesper's death to a certain degree and then it shows up again in Skyfall, it shows up again in, in uh, Spectre um, on that end, you know, that, that there's this sort of like attempt to link everything together. And Michael, when I was working for them, he, he, he'd said, you know, what do you think about the idea of doing a film that's, a Bond film that's sort of told over, you know, a story, a larger story that's over like three films and stuff. And at the time I was, I was like, I kind of like the idea that you can mix and match Bond films. It doesn't matter which one you see first. You can always understand everything that's happening in them. Yeah. You can see the series out of order and you're fine. And Clearly, if you look at the success of the Marvel Universe or the Harry Potter films, Michael might have had a really interesting point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether that actually works for James Bond or not, I don't know. You know, I, I, I wonder how many people who walked in and saw Spectre and had seen all the previous films were like, oh yeah, I remember Mr. White. I'm really interested in what his fate is. Uh, but you know, I'm so caught up in the series, it's very hard for me to step back from that and, and know whether that's a, a general concern for a viewer or not, or whether they care, whether they remember Mr. White or not. So where, where would you like to see it go, go next? Would you like the standalones to make a return? You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I just want them to be entertaining and, and, uh, uh, 
and frequent. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and you know, I, I just, you know, it's like if somebody said, John, you know, we're going to sit down. You're going to be under contract, and and you know, we're going to, you're going to be like a monkey at a typewriter. You're just going to throw out bond ideas all day long. I've done that job. Um, it, it's actually not as fun of a job as you think it might be, but it, it's, you know, it's a lot of work and. Uh, you know, people aren't sitting around and patting you on the back and saying, good job. Oh, we love your talent. These are people who work with the most talented folks in the world. So, uh, you know, if they feel you haven't hit the mark, they can be warm and nice and, and everything like that. But, you, you know, your, your, uh, your self-esteem is not emboldened by <laughs> the lack of, <laughs> of joy and love you're going to be getting back from it there. So, um uh, but if somebody paid me to do that, that's one thing. But as it is now, I am now just a guy who walks into the cinema and watches the movies and, you know, will do like every other Bond fan and, and bitch about the stuff you think they got wrong and, and glory over the stuff that, that, that thrilled you to no end. Uh, and, and like every hardcore Bond fan, you know, you see a new Bond film and, and, and you're, there's always this part of you that's like, Gosh, it didn't ignite that same exact thing that a Bond film ignited in me when I was 11 years old. And um, that's just being older. So, question we've got here is that, um, which you've kind of answered slightly there, is obviously you've spent a lot of your life researching Bond, learning about Bond, delving into the, the various aspects of it. Do you still spend a lot of time looking into, in depth into the world of Bond? I spend an inordinate amount of time with James Bond. I am standing in a room here where I have yards and yards of bookshelves filled with James Bond books and publications. My walls are covered with uh, old 1960s uh, James Bond um, related albums in frames, James Bond movie posters. When uh, I went to Greece with my son in 2019. Uh, we did have to go scuba diving in the Ionian Sea. We did have to go uh, uh, mountain climbing at Meteora. Uh, you know, if I'm going to some place where there's a James Bond film location, I've got to be there. Uh, you know, those types of things bring me great joy. Just before I was doing this interview, I was trying to check something in a documentary I'd done for somebody who'd sent me an email about it. Um, I, I, you know, there's, uh, James Bond still brings me tremendous amount of joy and that's the novels, that's the films, that's the music. Uh, you know, I, I, I bought a new car, a Mazda Miata, not quite uh, willing to spend as much as a Aston Martin would, would run me. <laughs> but, you know, I had to buy a, a, a license plate frame holder, which is in the United States. I don't know if they have these in England or not, but uh, you know, you, you'll get these like little things that, that you put over the ex, the outside edge of your, your license plate frame. And so I decided I was gonna order a, a specialty one. What does mine say at the bottom? Universal Exports Limited. What does it say at the, the top? Uh, uh, Orb is non-sufficient. So uh, the world is not enough in Latin. 
I am still that walleye James Bond fan geek. I am still always looking for these fascinating little connections. You know, there's an episode of Grey's Anatomy I have to now see because somebody, a uh, dying person has to put 007 in somebody's hand to let them know who he is because his face has apparently been ripped off or destroyed absurdly during the course of the episode. And, uh, you know, somebody just told me about that. I, I'm always just like, oh, wow, you know, look at this. <laughs> so I, I watch, you know, I'll watch a film and, I, you know, everybody who knows me knows that I'll do this. The, the credits will be going up and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that person right there, they did costumes on Goldfinger. Or that person right there, they were script supervisor on, on all of these Bond films. I mean, this is the, the, this is the world I live in right now. And... You know, I could rebel against it or I could embrace it. Now, I have a lot of other interests, a lot of other things I enjoy doing. James Bond is no longer the way I make my living, uh, which probably makes it easier for me to enjoy the world of Bond now. But yeah, that's, uh, that's you know, I was, a, I was a fan and then I turned pro. Just, well, we won't keep you for much longer, John, but um, we, a couple of your books, we really rely on heavily for our podcast. We do, you know, we're going through the, the, the James Bond, the people who made James Bond in an A to Z way. Uh, one of our favourites is The Legacy. And um, <clears throat> is there a plan to ever update that book, you know, for the 60th anniversary or? You know, you guys are more than welcome to, to contact <laughs> Eon Productions because, you know, that book, it only came out in this large format hardback. Yeah. And I mean, I mm -hmm. had I had the executive at MGM who was working with Barbara and Michael uh, come to me and he was like, you know, they can you talk them into doing this into like just a text version of the book so that it's easier to read? Because it's like, you know, I try to read it in my desk or a bed and it's this huge unwieldy thing um, I had people come to me and say there should be an audiobook version of this or whatever and I would love that you know a little ebook version of it that would be fantastic are they going to do it the odds are very very low you know it's, it's just like the odds of them calling me up and saying we'd like to get a uh, Inside Tomorrow Never Dies documentary John which is another thing that people will say you know there are only a few titles that don't have that you know specific type of making of documentary on them and I'm like yeah well probably going to stay that way uh at least for the the foreseeable future but um i'm very proud of that book uh you know it was a lot of fun to work on bruce sively my co-author certainly de deserves every bit of the 50 percent of the credit you know on that end uh we work together very well as a team and and bruce is an amazing base of knowledge on on bond stuff and, and somebody who just you you rarely going to find somebody who works harder than bruce uh, so one one final question then, John. You, you've 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 spoken about your collection there. There's a fire in your house. What's the first bit of James Bond memorabilia that you pick up? <laughs> you know, that's that's really really tough. Uh, you know, the the instinct would be go and get the first editions, and I don't have all the British first editions, and a, a, a lot of the ones I do have aren't with dust jackets. I do have all the American editions in dust jackets now, so I'm happy about that. But, you know, it changes week to week. You know, you, 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 I, I don't spend a lot of time just sort of like luxuriating over the collection. Uh, there's a lot of organizing I need to do with it. I donated a huge, huge amount to the University of Southern California Special Collections Library. So um, that wasn't like uh, was some of the book stuff, but not a ton of it. Uh, but I just, I, I didn't have room for it anymore. And, uh, you know, 
talked to the lawyer over at Eon, and he's, he was like, yeah, they're, they're a great repository for it. So, um, you know, now anybody who wants to see the call sheets from those early films, they're there. They can be researched. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, tough question. I, I would love to say I had a great answer for you there. But to be honest with you, this is all on the third floor of where I live. And if there's a fire, I'm unlikely to be on the third yeah. floor, and I'm not going to be running up. I'm going to be running out. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, thank you so much, John. We really appreciate um, you taking the time to speak to us. It's been really enlightening for us. Um, and, yeah, wish you all the best, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see No Time to Die soon. And we'd love to hear what you thought of it when that, uh, when that happens. Sounds good. And uh, if I can be of assistance with any of your other podcasts and talking about the, the films or the people, I was I was sorry I couldn't talk about Casino Royale 67. I'm sure we'll so. take you up on that one, John. There's there's lots of information that we always want to know, and you're probably the person who knows the answers to it. I'm one of the people. There are plenty of people who know, all, uh, you know, I mean, there's, you know. It's just I, I could give you whole lists of names when you get to Goldeneye, Matthew <laughs> Parker. You just you know the things like that that you, you know people you need to talk to. So anyway, take care. Great. Thank talking you. To you guys. Thank you, John. You too. Thank, Thank you, thank you, so, you much. so much. Thank right, you. Bye bye. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John, for John Cork for joining us for this uh, special episode of the podcast. Um, his book, as mentioned, uh, James Bond, The Legacy, is available. It's a massive book, <laughs> as he yeah. said. You two have both got it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that to oh, get, yes. get an extra bedroom to store it. Yeah. <laughs> it is a heavyweight tome, but well worth a read. And also he worked on the encyclopedia as well. Also worth worth looking at uh, and loads of other books. But um, yeah, thank you so much, John, for, for joining us. Um, how did you find it, guys? absolutely I'd, fantastic I need, I need a few days to digest all that information mm. yeah I, I'm it's still fun. just sat here sort of just mm. in, in a daze yeah. <laughs> it's, phenomenal. It's, it's not often you get to speak to somebody who has personal interactions with all these characters that we're talking about every week so it's mm. a pretty pretty amazing uh, opportunity to find out about them yeah, yeah and it shows that you know spending all this time looking into James Bond can pay off for some people so uh, <laughs> <laughs> validation <laughs> validation um but yeah i guess um uh, we will be back again soon with another episode of the james bond a to z but if people want to contact us how should they get hold of us well if you want to correct me on uh any more mistakes i've made you can uh contact us on the socials instagram twitter facebook at james bond a to z and if you want to complain about any of uh, Brendan's mistakes on email, that's podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Yeah, all your meteorological complaints can be directed. Direct to Brendan also on Twitter. Um, you can find him on there as well. But um, yeah, thank you for listening. James Bond A to Z will return next time. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler. Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley. With music by Tom Ingomels. And artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.